0: That is a marvelous hymn, and uh, that's it, it. Really helps when uh, you get the background on a hymn, doesn't it? Sort of makes it come alive. You can relate with it a little more. The Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago is uh, the second oldest uh, mission work in America. And uh, Billy Sunday, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that name. He was a great evangelist. Used to be a ball player. Uh, with the Chicago White Sox back in the late 1800s when it was called the Chicago White Stockings. That's how far back. And he was a good ball player. And he quit that. He got saved and uh, quit all that uh, to serve the Lord as an evangelist. And uh, boy, worldwide he traveled. um, Something like a million souls were swept into the kingdom because of his uh, fiery preaching. Wow, this guy billy sunday he was just he was like a cannon let loose he he just exploded onto the scene and uh, anyhow he donated a great big piano to the pacific garden mission i was there at to the pacific garden mission i went and visited the pacific garden mission said hello to billy sunday no i'm just kidding Uh, but i did go in the 1980s i went down there i was in chicago and they don't call it the Windy City for nothing. Wow, I didn't dress warm enough. I remember it was cold on the streets, but I went and I visited the Pacific Garden Mission because that's a place of history. Wow, D.L. Moody was involved with the Pacific Garden Mission. It's just a tremendous place. And they took me on a tour all through there, a really nice facility, and all these many, many years, they've stood true, and they're still winning souls to Christ and helping men get their, and women, get their lives Straightened they've uh, still have a radio program What's the name of that radio program? Unshackled Unshackled, that's it and uh, you can hear it on local uh, radio around here Christian radio unshackled Oh, you're probably easier to hear it off the internet Look it up and they have the stories of uh, men and men's lives women's lives that got changed through Pacific Garden mission. It's really worth listening to well. Let's take our Bibles and open up to the book of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. Well, tonight's the night. And um, chapter eight. We have worked our way faithfully, chapter by chapter through this great book. And um, we're going to try and finish it all up. Uh, Let's see, we're ready to go. Song of Solomon. Chapter 8. There we are. Uh, in this chapter, we find that the love and affections between the bridegroom and the bride are as strong as ever. Maybe even stronger. And I'm going to tell you right up front, the narrative is the most complicated of all the chapters. Chapter 8 presents the most hairpin turns in the road. It's... it's. Uh, I don't think any human on earth uh, fully understands it. Um, We're going to look at it through a conservative set of glasses tonight. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to make some great applications. So, as always, let's bow our heads and begin with prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you for this great book here found just about in the middle of the Bible. This Song of Solomon, this Song of Songs. It's a good book, and it does teach us much of the love that you have for your people and your people's love for you. <coughs> please help us tonight to finish this chapter and to make application. Holy Spirit, please do the work. We need you to help us to love our Savior more. The world calls to us day after day, tempting and alluring us away from our beloved. Help us to solidify, firm up, make strong our commitment to Christ tonight. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. All right. So let's see. Let's get to our outline. And we begin with Israel. And uh, this is actually the bride continuing her dialogue back from chapter uh, 7 and verse 10, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. And so it continues right on in. Now let's take a look at this verse and then we'll, we'll, um, we'll talk about it a bit. Uh, oh, that thou wert as my brother that sucked the breasts of my mother. When I should find thee without, I would kiss thee. Yea, I should not be despised. Now, in modern North American culture, this verse sounds very strange. It's not something that uh, we would uh, just you know, run up to and embrace. But in the ancient Middle East, uh, the customs of husbands and wives in public was more restrained compared to that of other family members. For example, um, it was not uncommon back then in that culture for a brother and sister to show their family affection for each other in public. By uh, touching and holding and uh, even kissing. Um, and in that setting, in those days, in that culture, it was not considered taboo. It was not considered out of place. And so that verse there, <clears throat> the bride is speaking. And she longs for the same open freedom um, of young family innocence with her, that she would have with her own brother when she can openly, affectionately caress and kiss her husband in public. So in that setting, husbands and wives were more restrained in public. But what she's wanting is to be able to lavish him with the affection that she would lavish on a brother growing up. And so that's the idea of that verse. So there's nothing kinky, perverted, twisted, underhanded, funny. It's it's innocence is what it is. Um, Verse 2. I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house, who would instruct me. I would cause thee to drink of spiced wine, of the juice of my pomegranate. Now, in, in the homes of that day, it was the mother who did much of the teaching of the children. She was sort of like the uh, matriarch here, if you will. Um, the, the children would uh, often sit at the mother's knee and she would teach them right from wrong. She also would have taught her daughter the facts of life. And so that's what the bride is getting at. She says, I would cause thee, talking to her, her husband, to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. And, and so this is a, a wine made from a pomegranate. And the mention of spice here, the fact that it's spiced, it doesn't mean it's spiked. Okay, There's a difference between a drink that's spiked and a drink that's spiced. Big difference, huh? This one was spiced. This... Um, had a strong aromatic smell to it. It was very alluring. It was captivating, the smell of it. Uh, It's not talking about the presence of alcohol here. It's talking about something that was carefully made, took a long time to make, and it was very desirable. Verse 3. His left hand should be under my head and his right hand should embrace me. And here, once again, the bride is expressing her great desire For her husband to hold her and to love her. And uh, that hasn't changed. It's still the desire of wives. Just about as a a rule of thumb. I I guess I couldn't say uh, without exception. But I think that uh, it's a very safe bet. That uh, every uh, wife wants to be uh, loved, held by her husband. And this is her, her desire once again. And uh, verse 4, she uh, uses a a well-known phrase here. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love until he please. And so she uses this phrase now for the third time. She's uh, used it in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And what it is, is a call for peace and privacy uh, of their sweet time together. And so she finishes off her part of the dialogue and then comes verse 5. And verse 5, there are all kinds of ideas as to who is doing the speaking. It's not, not the bride. It's not the bridegroom. Let's look at it. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? I raised thee up under the apple tree. There thy mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. Well, obviously, it's not the bride, it's not the bridegroom, it's not the the mother of the bride. Who is this that's uh, doing the speaking? And some commentaries suggest that it's maybe one of the brothers of the bride, uh, or maybe one of the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, if all we had was an immediate context, you know, any of those answers would work. The immediate context of a man and a woman. Solomon and the Shulamite bride. The husband and wife. If that's all we had in the Song of Solomon. Then sure. Okay. It could mean maybe one of them. Maybe someone else. The immediate context of Solomon and his wife. No problem. The problem comes when you look at the greater dynamic of the book of Song of Solomon. Because we put, we put this right out front. Right. You know. Eight eight chapters ago, right out front, that it's not just uh, a love story between a husband and wife. It's a love story between God and his people. And I believe that to be true. I think that's why we have that book. And if that is the case, we've got the dialogue between God and his people, between his people and God. So who in the world is this? Who could that possibly be? So um, it might possibly refer to the unsaved Jews or perhaps to the unsaved Chaldeans out of which Abraham came. Another thought is that it's the actual land of Israel doing the speaking. You've got some of the Psalms that talk about the, the trees shouting and mountains and shouting and they're clapping their hands and that sort of thing anthropomorphisms it's called, giving human qualities to inanimate objects such as trees and mountains. So maybe it's the uh, the land of Israel doing the speaking. Um, possibly. Here's a suggestion though. I think it's safe to refer to the Holy Spirit in this case. I think that's where the safe money is. I think that's a safe bet right there. We're not going out on some wild tangent, some wild... Uh, a limb or something, but it's a reference somehow to the Holy Spirit involved, because truly, and you know this, the Holy Spirit was definitely involved in getting Abraham to the promised land, in bringing about, you know, the uh, the nation Israel, and, uh, and all the things that happened there, the Holy Spirit was absolutely part of it. So, uh, look at it here. In verse 5, Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I just want you to note that, that the bride leans on Solomon. And isn't it true that God's people are to lean on God? Isn't that the truth? Isn't that what we have in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And what? Lean not unto thine own understanding. Right? Right? In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So we are to lean on him. That's what faith is all about. Now, we move along, and we come to Israel again. And so now here, the bride begins describing her steadfast love for her husband. And there's a method behind the madness here. There's a reason why she does it, as you will see as we get near the end. Actually, when we get to the last couple of verses, you'll understand maybe a bit more why at this point in the narrative, she really comes on strong, describing her powerful love for her husband. Uh, Verse 6, Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death, We'll talk about that in a minute. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. We'll talk about that in a moment. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. We'll talk about that. <laughs> she says, set me as a seal. And a seal would show ownership. She's talking to her husband, and she wants him to set her as a seal. It shows ownership and permanent commitment. Married folks, remember that. Ownership. Ownership permanent commitment you don't get much of that these days right we live in a world that doesn't believe in that sort of thing more and more there are people that believe that marriage licenses should be granted the same way dog licenses are they're only good for a year and they're renewable and that is so uh, out of the will of God the idea behind God's will is one man for one woman for one life that's the, that's the idea of God's will when it comes to marriage. A permanency there. And the same permanency that you want between uh, you and God is the same permanency that he wants between us married folks. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, does it? Because we're flawed. God is not flawed. We're flawed. And so things happen that we wish wouldn't, but they do. But here she is describing her tremendous steadfast love. And she's, she's wanting to be like a seal. <clears throat> um, showing the permanency, showing the, the commitment. She says, love is strong as death. Now, when, huh, married people, when was the last time you whispered those sweet words into your loved one's ear? Huh? When, husbands, when have you uh, whispered those words to your wife? Love is strong as death. If it doesn't sound like something we would say, does it? And he said, "Well, why did she say it? Because death is so permanent, isn't it? How many people do you know that crawl out of the grave and go back to work?" <laughs> I saw a sign. Maybe you've seen this. Those who don't believe in life after death ought to be around here at quitting time. <laughs> Little sign they put up at work at the office. <laughs> Life after death. But she, she mentions death because it's very permanent. And so was her love for him. It was permanent, just as death is permanent. Then she says, jealousy is cruel as the grave. You know, if it wasn't for that word cruel, that little adjective cruel, we might, you know, better understand this. Jealousy as the grave. Okay, well, maybe that's borrowing off of the, the first one. Well, the idea of being jealous is to be zealous. That's the idea of jealous and zealous are kissing cousins. They are very close in meaning. The word cruel, uh, I don't know what you think of it, but the way the word cruel was understood 400 years ago <clears throat> when they uh, printed the King James Bible was it meant raw, like uh, raw flesh, almost like bloody raw um and so again that idea of jealousy being you know raw as i guess as real as, as it gets as the grave again referring to the strength of her love and her commitment to him that's all it is it's just another way of saying pretty much the same thing that her love for him is so strong so powerful so raw So permanent. That's what she's saying. And then, of course, she talks about coals of fire here. And her love burns very hot for him. And love ought to do that, don't you think? We talk about revival and getting right with God and the fire of God. You know, and uh, when you feel the Lord speaking to your heart, isn't it wonderful? And you come on the invitation and God has spoken to your heart. And you, you get down on your knees and you talk to God for a minute or two about something. And you go back to your seat and you Thank you, Lord, for speaking to my heart. Thank you, Lord. And it's like that, that fire, that revival comes back, you see. Well, that's what we ought to be feeling in our marriages is uh, that um, fire of affection. Now, it doesn't maybe happen 24-7, you know, all our lives. Uh, it kind of comes and goes. But it all, all, always ought to be warm It always ought to be warm and the temperature ought to rise every once in a while. There ought to be some of that that flame that that we have one for another. Now verse 7, many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. Well, it sounds like on the heels of the coals of fire, it sounds like her love is similar to a fire that cannot be quenched by water. Her love cannot be extinguished is what it sounds like. And then watch what she says. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love. Now who's she married to? Say it. Go ahead, say it. Solomon. She's married to Solomon. If you know anything about this guy, you know he's wealthy. Right? He's considered to be one of the wealthiest men that's ever lived on the face of God's green earth. And so it's interesting she would say this. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would would utterly be contemned. So Solomon, all of his wealth could not equal her love. All of his money could not purchase her love. All of the riches that he owned could not replace her love. Now, I've looked up where uh, they estimate that Solomon's wealth in today's language is worth quite a bit of money. Um, name me the name of one or two of the world's wealthiest men. Bezos, Gates, right? And Bezos is supposed to be worth, is it 110, 120 billion dollars? Something like that? All right. Uh, let's see if we can get an idea here. Um, how many um, how many thousands are there in a million? Hmm. A thousand. There's a thousand thousands in a million. Okay. So if you have a thousand dollars, you are a one thousandth millionaire. Right. If you and your husband, or you and your wife, each have a thousand dollars, wow! <laughs> now you got a million dollars. Okay, how many millions in a billion? How many? No, a thousand. There are a thousand millions in one billion. And so, if you have a million dollars, it means you're one thousandth. Wealthy as Jeff Bezos. <laughs> so as there's a thousand thousands in a million, there's a thousand millions in a billion. How many billions in a trillion? Thousand. You're getting the hang of this, aren't you? Yes. There's a thousand billions in a trillion. Jeff Bezos has a hundred billion well, if he had 900 more billion, he'd have one trillion. It's estimated that King Solomon's wealth in today's language was 2.2 trillion dollars. Can I get a gasp out of anyone? There, I feel it was worth the effort. (laughs) 2.2 trillion dollars. Wow, he could just if he wanted to just pay off the national debt of Canada and America and probably, I don't know, Europe or something, you get the idea of his wealth. He, he so far surpasses Jeff Bezos. You know, a guy says, oh, I got a thousand bucks. Hey, I'm wealthy. And then he runs into a guy that has 10,000 bucks. And the guy with 10,000 says, hey, let's go spend a thousand dollars on something. And all of a sudden the first guy thinks, I can't do that. That wiped me out. The guy with 10,000 says, "Hey, it's no problem for me." Until he meets a guy with 100,000. And the guy with 100,000 says to him, "Hey, let's go spend $10,000 on something." And the guy with $10,000 says, "I can't do that." That will wipe me out. Not me, says the guy with 100,000, till he meets a guy with a million. And the guy with a million says, "Let's go spend 100,000 on something." And the guy with $100,000 says, "I can't do that." It'll blow me out the door. I have nothing left. <laughs> Not me, says the millionaire, Till he meets a guy with 10 million. You get how this goes? Who meets a guy with 100 million? That's Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos meets Solomon. And Solomon says, let's go spend two or 300 billion on something. And Jeff Bezos, the world's most wealthy man, even if he got his buddy Bill Gates in there with him. And they liquidated all their assets and they put all their money together. They couldn't spend $200 because they don't got it. And that's a drop in Solomon's bucket. And this little lady said that if a man took all the substance of his house and offered that up, that's nowhere near enough to replace the love she has for her husband. What she's saying is that she's got no price. There's an old saying, every man's got his price. You've heard that, right? Every man's got his price. Soda. Ivan, you love your dog? Yeah, what's the dog's name again? Soda. soda. Soda pop, right. Soda. Nice dog, Soda? Yeah. Wags his tail? Fun to play with? You love him? Sure. Would you, would you sell him for ten bucks? No, he says, of course not. All right, we'll give you a hundred bucks for soda. No, well, that was pretty quick. He made his mind up there pretty fast. Oh, yeah, drive a hard bargain, Ivan. We'll give you a thousand dollars for soda. No, it took a little longer, but the answer's still the same. No. Oh, Ivan, I don't know what we're going to do with you. We'll give you a hundred thousand dollars for soda. I said $100,000 for soda. What was your answer? It's a tough one, isn't it? All right. He's saying no because that's what he thinks we all want to hear. All right. How about a million dollars for soda? Yeah, talking about your soda. Now he's thinking... You know, soda could probably use a better home than what I'm giving him. There's probably other families that need soda's affection. You see, what we're saying is that even though soda's a great companion, you know, you just keep putting the price up higher, and all right, you can have them, and there's the million dollars. And uh, here's a lady whose love could not be bought. Now, this is an important point. And she says that if a man were to give all the substance of his house, and in Solomon's case, $2.2 trillion, what does she say about that money? She says it'll just be contemned. It's like a joke. It's not worth it. She has no price that she would trade her affection for. She wouldn't sell out her affection You go up to some newlyweds, and you say, Hey, you're you're just married. Congratulations. They say, Thank you. We're so much in love. Oh, that's great. Hey, uh, would you get a divorce for a thousand bucks? They say, Are you nuts? Okay, all right. How about a million dollars? Would you get a divorce for a million dollars? And all of a sudden, they stop, and they look at each other. You see where this is going? And they may, No, no, we can't do it. No, I'm sorry. We can't do it. All right, well, I'll give you 10 million dollars if you get a divorce. Ten million dollars if you get a divorce. Ten million dollars. And they're thinking, well, we could get a divorce and still live together. Uh, we could get a divorce and buy houses beside each other. Well, and their, their mind is racing. Hmm You just keep going till you find their price. This lady's got no price. That's how much love she had for her husband. Isn't that unbelievable? Isn't that amazing? That is, I think, the most powerful truth here is the tremendous love that she has for her husband. And no, uh, nothing on earth, nothing, nothing on earth would ever tempt her away from that. It doesn't matter what the price is. It will not tempt her away. So I just wanted you to see that. I think it's very important. Um. Demas, I think, may be an example of a Christian who, gave, who was willing to give his love for God in exchange for the things of the world. Now, let's move on here. Because we got the Holy Spirit again, I think. Verses 8 and 9. We have a little sister. Now, um, apparently the bride's got a little sister. A couple of chapters ago in chapter 6, verse 9, I made a mistake and I said that there was no little sister. And clearly there was a little sister. Most likely the bride's little sister. So I made a mistake. So if you're making notes, go back and correct that note, okay? But because the sister was so young and not of marrying age, she plays just a minor role. And so we have a little sister and she hath no breasts. What shall we do for our sister? Again, who is speaking? Who is saying these words? And that's why I suggest the safest bet is this is the Holy Spirit. Remember, we've got two pictures going on, and we can kind of lay one over the other. We've got the the primary of Solomon and his bride, the Shulamite gal. But then we've got God and his people. And one sort of gives us an understanding of the other. By the way, that's what a parable does. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so that's why parables are so important. And so I don't think this is a parable because it actually existed. It actually happened. So I think that is a true story, but pictures for us what's happening in heaven. God's love for his people, our love for him. So, uh, again, I suggest that the narrative here <clears throat> is done by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now, it talks about brothers, yep, a possible reference to the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what I'm suggesting here. But the brothers are talking, or sorry, are taking into account their little sister who will one day come of age and marry. Now, I want to make a suggestion I don't think it's too far out in left field. But perhaps this is a clever reference to the day when the Gentiles will get saved. Because you have that spoken of and prophesied in Old Testament scriptures. That the Gentiles will come to know God as their savior. So let's look at the verse. We have a little sister. And again, maybe that's a reference to the Gentiles. Not of marrying age, but one day will be. We have a little sister, and she hath no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she shall be spoken for? Now, verse 9. Look at this. If she be a wall, we will build upon her a palace of silver. And if she be a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. What in the world does that mean? If she be a wall, if she be a door. A wall or a door? A wall is something strong and solid, and it's built on a foundation. Hopefully it is, anyhow. And it's not going to move. A door is something that moves all the time. Moves on hinges. Right? So you've got one very solid, and you've got one that's not very solid. And it's very movable. I think this is what they're getting at here. So if she be a wall, in other words, something good and solid, good character, good choices, then what the brothers were going to do is build upon her palaces, things of beauty. If she be a door, uh, something movable, uh, weaker character, unwise choices, then the brothers would restrict her freedoms and enclose her with strong, beautiful boards to protect her. So again, I I just suggest to you that this is for the greater purpose, the Holy Spirit talking about a little sister, quite possibly a reference to the Gentiles um, that are one day yet to be saved. We come finally to the last bit of dialogue, and it's um, the bride. And uh, this is maybe where the saying comes from, about the women always getting in the last word. Um, but in uh, verse 10, she uh, she says, I am a wall. Isn't that interesting? Her little sister, they didn't know what she was going to be. But she says in answer to her brothers, or perhaps in answer to the Holy Spirit here, uh, I am a wall. Um, The idea of her being strong of character and making wise, good choices. And can I put this in again, please? Keeping herself pure for the right man, for God's choice for her. So important these days. So important. So many uh, young ladies are selling out their virginity to some creep who says, Oh yeah, baby, if you love me, if you really love me, prove it. You know, let let's uh, let's let's get together tonight. You know, prove that you love me. Well, any guy that would say that and pressure the girl and threaten her just about well, he doesn't love her at all. And uh, that's why we always recommend that if a, a young man shows interest in a young lady, he's got to get dad's permission first. And if she would say to him. Oh, thank you for showing interest in me, but uh, you've got to go talk to my dad. If, you know, if you want to sort of court me or something, you've got to talk to my dad first. And dads have a lot of built-in radar. They can smell out the sharks. Oh, honey, this one's a shark. Let him go. Let me kill him. No, dad, you can't kill him. It's against the law. Oh, I want to kill him, honey. No, you can't, dad. All right, we'll let this one go, though. That's the one, that one's a shark. That one's a shark. And by the way, moms have a tremendous radar for bad, you know, to, to sniff out bad girls, girls that are not good for their boys. And if a, a girl is interested in a, a boy, if she bats her eyes at him, it's a wise and smart thing to get mom involved. She'll know if those eyelashes are false or not. <laughs> mom, moms know these things, right? Boy, the way God has set up um, marriage. And listen, I'm a big proponent for a a real man and a real woman. Okay, I know that the laws of the land allow for two men or two women, or listen to this, two women and one man. There there are legal cases like that happening. And I know that in Canada, those things are, are legal. Not everyone in Canada agrees with it, though. <clears throat> you know, we're all running scared, you know, because of the big the government that makes our threats and things like that. You know, I love my government. I pray for the prime minister. Love, I love the, the country of Canada. I do. It's where God has me. I'm born here. I love Canada so much. I was, I was born in Canada's capital city in Ottawa. That's how much I love Canada. Is that I was born in the capital city? See, I made sure, and. Um, But not everything Canada does, I agree with, okay? And uh, not even the opposition party agrees with everything the current sitting uh, political party does that they agree with. But anyhow, I think the way God has set up marriage and family and home is perfect. And when we go changing the formula, right? It's like a a DNA, it's perfect. You go messing with things, you you become kind of some sort of Frankenstein kind of uh, monster, you know, up from the, the moat or something comes this, this thing. Uh, wow. Anyhow, uh, this gal, this wife of Solomon, she was like a wall. And she was solid and she made good choices. And she kept herself pure for her husband. And uh, that's one of the, the best, best, best gifts That a a bride can give to her husband. And so anyhow. Verse 10. She says I am a wall. She says. Um, And I think this is what Solomon found very favorable in her. Now verses 11 and 12. She shows her understanding of her value to Solomon. She says here. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard unto keepers. Every one. For the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. This vineyard was elaborate. This wasn't some little 10 foot by 10 foot little pea patch. This was elaborate. If you go back and study the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about some of his exploits there. And some of the fabulous things he did with his 2.2 trillion dollars. If you had 2.2 trillion dollars and you wanted a vineyard or a garden, chances are... It's going to be a nice one. It's going to be a big, lavish one. Which is what it was. And it was so huge that he let it out to keepers. And uh, they all brought him rent on this. And of course, it was worth every penny, I think. You know, all the farmers, the men who farmed it, and they went in there, and they, um, they got a lot of fruit out of there, a lot of vines, of, um, grapes, and so on. They paid him a good rent. Now, um, verse 12 She seems to have come into a vineyard of her own. This is a bit new, possibly a wedding gift. She says, my vineyard, which is mine, is before me. Thou, O Solomon, must have a thousand, and those that keep the fruit thereof, two hundred. So it's almost like she recognizes the business sense of this. You know, she's she's more than just a pretty face. She's got a smart head on her shoulders, this girl. That's why she was a wall. She made good choices, good decisions. She was a a smart cookie, is what she was. And so she seems to have come into possession of a vineyard. Right away, she proudly turns this over to her husband. And he recognizes what it is she's doing. Now we come to verses 13 and 14. And listen carefully. She's still speaking. She says, Thou that dwellest in the garden. She's talking to her husband. The, co- the companions hearken to thy voice. Cause me to hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be thou like to a roe or to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. And it would seem that the young couple, Solomon and the Shulamite, for a period of time need to be apart. They seem to have maybe business calls or something. He had to go away. But the young couple must be apart for a short time. Solomon to his gardens. The bride to remain there in the vineyards and wait for his coming. The companions would be the servants who hear Solomon's voice and who wait upon him. She says, cause me to hear it. Cause me to hear your voice too. She longs to hear his voice. She says, make haste, my beloved. She longs for his return, so they'll be together again. And she speaks of the roe and the young heart. Uh, she's made allusion before to Solomon's sure-footed swiftness, wanting him to return to her. And that's why I think she was so adamant in her, um, uh, her, her love in verse 6. Set me as a seal upon thine heart. As a seal upon thine arm. For love is strong as death. And so on. She was very, very strong. Very, very adamant about her permanency. Her commitment in her love for him. And in the light of verses 13 and 14. It's because they had to be away. But she knew he would come back. So in verse 7. Once again. We found here that she said that her love for Solomon could not be purchased with money. She had no price. She couldn't be tempted. Nothing this world had to offer could ever take his place. She was very adamant about that. and I got thinking, oh how the devil tempts you and me. Tempts us to trade away our affections for Christ. He tempts us with promises of money and promises of wealth. He tempts us with pleasures and with delights. He tempts us with promises of special and great things. We say to the Lord Jesus, Jesus, I'm going to meet with you. Together we'll have secret communion in the prayer closet tomorrow morning. And so you set your clock. A half hour early. And the alarm clock rings. And you're tempted just to hit snooze. You're so tempted to say, Oh, it's not going to work today. I'll try again tomorrow. Now, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes? Is this a familiar song? I think it's one that the devil uses on all of us. I like to get up early and spend that time with the Lord... I try to get to bed early. Sometimes I get to bed early, but I don't fall asleep. And sometimes it actually takes me a couple of hours. That's happened, hasn't it? Before I drift off asleep. Boy, does that ever make that snooze button tempting, you know, when it goes off early in the morning. And I've, I've given in. You know, I wish I could say that I've never given. I've given in to the snooze button. It's happened to me. The old devil works the same tricks on all of us, doesn't he? And he he tempts us to trade away our love and our affection and our commitment and our promise the night before to trade it away for a few more minutes of sleep. That's what he does. He tempts us to stay away from church so that we could put in overtime and make time and a half or double time You know, oh, that wouldn't tempt me. Then the boss says, triple time. And all of a sudden we're saying, well, you know, I don't really have any responsibilities this Sunday. And we're making the excuses, aren't we? And we're selling. We're selling out our love and our affection for our Savior for a few bucks. That goes pretty quick too, by the way. Money maketh itself wings. That old devil, he tempted Eve. Eve. With some lovely food. Sometimes do you ever wish that she hadn't given in to that temptation? Do you ever think about that? I do. That old devil, he tempted with worldly wealth. He tempted Abraham's nephew, Lot. He tempted Achan. He tempted Gehazi. He tempted the prodigal son. He tempted Ananias and Sapphira. He tempted Demas. He even tempted the church at Laodicea. With all that wealth. He tempted Diotrephes with popularity and with fame. And there are so many people today, they feel friendless. And they'll do just about anything to be popular. And to have a bunch of friends and be part of the in-crowd. And they'll sell their purity that they've pledged to Jesus. They'll sell their affection, their love for Him. For things the world can offer. Do you sometimes feel tempted? The solution, the antidote, the answer is always the same. Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Cast all your care upon Him for He careth for you. Give that problem, give that temptation to Jesus and ask him to help. Now, the last two verses of this chapter, we saw the bride and her beloved had to be apart for a season. Isn't that just like us and Jesus? Right? Can I get an amen? It's true. He's in heaven. We're not. We're on earth here. It's like Jesus has ascended up the the Mount of Spices. He's in His garden up there with His companions around Him. The saints that have gone before and the angels. He's up there with them. We're down here in the valley, in the vineyard. He's left us in the vineyard. But He's coming again. Folks, he is coming again. This may be the year. It wasn't last year or the year before. Just as well because there are some people that got saved this year that didn't get saved last year. And aren't you glad? Oh, well, maybe they get saved in the tribulation. Well, I sure hope so. But do you know the cost of getting saved in the tribulation? Getting your head chopped off. That's quite a steep price to pay. That won't happen to people that got saved this year so far. They'll be swept up together with us to meet the Lord in the air when He comes. Maybe we have the next ten months. February, March. We're in a March, right? Yeah, good. Yeah, nine and a half months or what have we got left of this year? Maybe we'll go right through to Christmas or Or to New Year's Eve. I don't know. But maybe he'll come back today. Uh, Yeah, today. We don't know when. But it could be soon. Our beloved will return. Our job is to labor for him in the vineyard. For his honor. For his glory. The question is, are we doing it? I hope you've enjoyed the the book of Song of Solomon. That's been a blessing to you. I know it has been to me. Let's pray again.